welcome. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I'm a native of Newark, New Jersey, and each week I'll be interviewing artists, historians, authors, and other cultural thought leaders to discuss the cultural impact and influence that Newark has had and continues to have on their lives and work. It's my pleasure and honor to have a distinguished Newark, New Jersey creative on the show today. Richard Wesley is an American playwright and screenwriter, a native of Newark, New Jersey. He is an associate professor in playwriting and screenwriting at New York University. He earned his BFA from Howard University in Washington, DC. His plays include The Black Terror, which was a drama desk winner, The Mighty Gents, which premiered on Broadway in 1978. Richard has penned screenplays for the motion pictures, including Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again, Native Son, and Fast Forward. His books include The Sirens, the Richard Wesley Play Anthology, and It's Always Loud in the Balcony. Yes. Anthony Davis's opera, The Central Park Five, with a libretto by Richard, won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Music. When I think of Richard's literary practice, I think of one of my favorite quotes. It is by the iconic American author and social justice advocate, James Baldwin. Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. He said this in 1961. So we're gonna find out during our conversation today, how Richard uses his artistic talent to disturb the peace. Okay. Okay, so welcome Richard. It's, it's good to be here. Thank you, Roger. Great. I, you know, it's. Um, I think it's appropriate that you um, introduced me with a quote from James Baldwin because he was probably my primary literary inspiration when I was in high school. Um, 1961 or 1962 was when The Fire Next Time um, uh, came out. Uh, and I remember reading... Uh, a review of the book in a civics uh, class at Eastside High School. And I got a hold of a copy. I went to the Newark Library and was reading um, uh, the copy that they had there. And um, Baldwin, I'd seen him on television, um, but reading his work, uh, um, it was it just opened up whole new uh, vistas for me. I remember reading Fire Next Time. Uh, More Notes of a Native Son. That was another book that he had written mm-hmm. around that time. And then, of course, you know, uh, 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 Giovanni's Room. And, um, uh, I did get to meet him when he came to the premiere, uh, the uh, uh, premiere that we had for um, Native Son okay. uh, in uh, back in 19, uh, was that like 1985? And I got to meet him and speak with him and spend some time with him. And uh, uh, it, it, it was um, an amazing uh, evening for me. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, you discover so much. I discovered, I didn't realize he lived in Istanbul. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, most people think in terms of uh, Paris uh, right. and he did spend uh, years there, but ultimately he left Paris and uh, moved to uh, to Istanbul, and I think um, 
uh, he was he still had a place there uh, when he passed away. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Richard, you grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Yes. Primarily in the 50s and the 60s. How did this time in Newark inform your literary practice? Um, I think echoes of what I remember from my childhood, um, you know, permeates almost everything that I've written. Almost all of my plays are inspired in one way or another by uh, my life uh, growing up in Newark or by things that have happened in Newark since I turned an adult. Um, And uh, even the motion picture comedies, Uptown Saturday Night and Let's Do It Again, uh, those characters uh, who appear in those movies were based on remembrances that I had from, uh, you know, uh, my teenage years uh, when I was, uh, you know, out and about in the city and everything, the things that I saw and the people that I heard about, people who were um uh you know acquaintances of my father uh uh things like that yeah so newark newark always plays a role um in my writing uh and um the lessons that i learned growing up um in one way or another they kind of come back into uh the work uh that i do as well so how was the proximity the proximity to um New York. How did that impact your early life or did that not happen until your? Well, I mean, New York from from my earliest uh, uh, memories has always played a a role in my life. Um, um, My mother uh, and her sisters and brothers um, uh, migrated into New York um, uh, one by one uh, during uh, the uh, 1920s and 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they settled in Harlem, uh, and several of them were still living, uh, in Harlem when I was growing up. So my mother, uh, who had moved to a Newark, um, after she married my father and everything, she would pack me and my younger brother up. We'd make our way from, uh, from down neck, from the ironbound, uh, area of Newark, uh, 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 to Penn Station, Newark Penn, mm-hmm. and uh, take the uh, Hudson Tubes uh, uh, over to New York. And then from there, uh, catch, uh, you know, the uh, uh, A train sometimes uh, from the Chamber Street stop, which is which was right next to where the uh, Hudson Tubes uh, terminated. And we'd ride up to uh, Harlem. Okay. Uh, and I found... That was all in New York. I really know knew. Uh, you sure. know, you know, most of my ride would be underground. I'm literally underground from um, all the way down um, at the uh, Chamber Street stop um, of um, the uh, Hudson Tubes uh, until um, I came above ground at 110th Street and Eighth Avenue, right on the edge of Harlem, of Central Harlem. Right. Uh, walk a couple blocks in one direction. I'm at my Uncle Otis and Aunt Evelyn's house. Then walk a couple blocks from there uh, in another direction, a little bit more to the east. And um, I'm at my Aunt Olivia and Uncle Max's house, uh, which was our apartment, <laughs> not house, apartment um, across the street from Wadley Junior High School. I see. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, so that was my uh, uh, basic introduction into New York uh, to much of my early life 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then when I got older, you know, like moving into high school and certainly once I came back to uh, uh, the metropolitan area after I graduated from college, then I got into like New York, you know. But, Absolutely. The other New York, right? Yeah. But, you know, the thing was in those days, um, uh, in the 50s, everything that um, I could have wanted um, was available to me in Newark. I didn't have to really go to New York um, for much of anything except to see uh, my relatives, um, uh, you know, when we traveled over there. Um, uh, Bambergers, the department store, had everything that Macy's had. It may not have been quite as large as Macy's, but it was a huge department store. And, um, you know, anything that Macy's had on sale that I would see on television um, was already on sale at Bamberg's. Um, the, all the first run uh, movies that were playing in, in uh, Times Square in New York were playing at the RKO or the Lowe's or the Brantford or the Paramount uh, a Theater uh, in Newark. Uh, you know, so there was really no reason to go to um, New York City for entertainment. Um, I think, uh, you know, well, when the baseball teams, you know, like the Dodgers, uh, when they were still in New York and the Giants, when they were uptown at the Polo Grounds, um, uh, right up at the upper edge of Harlem, um, we might go over there for that. Uh, my uncle, uh, I had an uncle who lived, um, my, bro- my father's brother who lived in Newark, he would drive us over because he liked to go see the ball games. Mm-hmm. But that was it. You know, otherwise, hey, man, you know, New York had Times Square, Newark had Broad and Market. Well, it's you interesting know? you mentioned that, Richard. Yeah, the idea, and it's hard for people to understand the size and scope of, New York, of, of Newark, New Jersey. I mean, other than the four huge wards and then downtown, I, we called it downtown, Mm-hmm. In the North Ward growing up. You yeah, it was uptown for us. Uptown <laughs> for an Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned the first run movies. When James Bond Goldfingers came out, I saw it at the Tivoli Theater on Roseville Avenue. Okay. I remember the Tivoli. North Park, yeah. And they had a they had a um, which is hard to believe, they had a children's hour that only, you know, teenagers and children could go into the theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, that seemed pretty racy to me for, for children, <laughs> but I guess they they needed to make whatever quota they needed to make as far as well. Well, yeah, you know, um, um, I remember um, I'm a little older than you, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I remember when Ten Commandments came out, um, and it played. I think it played at the at the um, at the RKO Proctors. Right. And uh, um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, and the proctors was like it was the it was the the top movie palace in the state Mm -hmm. at the time Uh, when when it was really functioning. There was it was the largest movie palace in New Jersey, Um, uh, uh, easily seated uh, close to three thousand people. you had to take an elevator if you really wanted to get as quickly as possible to the upper to the upper balcony. Um, it, you know, there was a concession stand downstairs that handled um, the orchestra section and 
maybe the first balcony, but there was a separate concession, <laughs> concession stand? stand all the way up at the top, um, just behind um, the uh, second balcony because it was because it was so far up. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, it's, 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 you know, uh, Ten Commandments, um, uh, there, there were so many people who came to see it when it opened that there's like a 250 seat theater on top of the RKO Proctors. The building is still there. You right. can still see the building, uh, but I don't think anybody can go in it because um, it's all old and abandoned now, but um, there there was a 250 seat theater on the top, and they had to open up that theater and have uh, you know have it for additional screenings and everything. Amazing. You know, and uh, and sometimes you can go to the Adams Theater. The Adams on Brantford Place was um, uh, you know a really fancy place um, uh, comparatively speaking to the other ones because. Uh, they didn't have that many movies that played there, but that was where I saw 2001. Ah, um, so that Space was the, Odyssey at the at the Adams. So that was the art theater, right? Yeah, that was the art theater. That was you know you, the Adams only played like really special films. Sure. And uh, we went there to see that, and uh, you know it was just like everything. You know, it, it was already generally known that uh, City Hall, Newark's City Hall was one of the grandest city halls on the, on, you know, on the East Coast. And um, it's certainly uh, a, a bigger and more interesting architectural uh, um, uh, specimen than um, City Hall in Manhattan. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you know so it's like, man, why, you know, like, why go to New York? You know, well, you, know again, you see yeah. it in Newark. You're absolutely right. I remember my brother and I, my dad took us to see Spartacus at mm-hmm. the RKO Proctor. Right. And then there was Tad's Steakhouse right below it next door. <laughs> so, right. And there were there was a Chinese restaurant, I think, in the RKO. Yes. Proctor. Yes. Um, if you came out, out, of, out of the RKO and just went to your left two doors, right. um, there was a Chinese restaurant up on the second floor of a building that was right next. Yeah. It was there for years. That building was there well into the 70s. Um, right. I mean, that restaurant, rather. I don't think it closed down until sometime in the 80s. That was my introduction to Chinese food. My mom would take us there to, you know, to uh, get us to go shopping with her. She said, well, I'll take you to the Chinese restaurant. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Selections from column A and column B. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned, uh, again, this idea of seeing first-run movies mm-hmm. in Newark. You mentioned the architectural um, um, uh, destinations and places that Newark had. Uh, what were some of your other favorite cultural institutions? You mentioned the library. Which you, or were you referring to the, um, 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 the main the, yeah, central library, the, 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 the uh, main library branch uh, that, that's down there on Washington Street? Right. Uh, I used to love to go there. Um, uh, when I was younger, I wasn't able to, cause that part of broad street, like if you're from the ironbound, um, mo- downtown Newark for you or uptown, uh, um, uh, for someone from the, from the ironbound is basically a very small area right around broad and market street, because most of what people wanted was available as soon as you got off the broad and market off the 34, the number one bus, mm-hmm. you just, you could 
walk a couple blocks and whatever you wanted was right there. The library is way <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's some serious walking for, you know, for a seven or eight year old oh, <laughs> to get all the way to the uh, to, to the library. So I only went there um, on really special uh, occasions mm -hmm. and um, the museum. Uh, we went there every year because there was always something. There was a school trip. And so there was always an opportunity to go to the, uh, go to the museum. Um, every year we went there for a presentation at the planetarium. Um, and there were some other science exhibits, uh, that were, uh, always on display at the museum. Yeah. So, um, I liked going to the museum, but the library, I loved going there and, uh, it meant a great deal to me, especially as, as I started to get older, I could always go there to find the book that I wanted. Right. Well, you know, we've talked about the cultural institutions um, there, um, which were also among my favorite. Um, let's talk about some of the cultural icons. Like um, one of my favorites was um, when I was younger, it was he was Leroy Jones. Oh, uh, yes. And then when he was older, he was Amiri Baraka. Mm -hmm. Can you tell the audience about the transformation of another Howard University? <laughs> yeah. Uh, person, Leroy Jones. Can you talk about that transformation from Leroy Jones to Amiri Baraka and why in Newark? How did Newark create that transformation? Well, um, uh, I first met him when I was a student at Howard. I had no idea that Leroy Jones, the author of Blues People mm -hmm. and the uh, playwright behind uh, Dutchman, which was like um, the most uh, easily, in my estimation, the most um, uh, profound and seminal Black theater um, uh, presentation uh, in the second half of the 20th century, even beyond um, Raisin in the Sun. Wow. Um, I don't, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to stick by that. I'll stick by that. I'll debate that with, uh, with most of the cultural intellectuals out there. Okay. Um, uh, we did a production of it at Howard, um, uh, maybe a couple of months after it had played, uh, off Broadway in New York. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that we did that production in the drama department, um, down at HU was because the chair of the department, Owen Dotson, was one of the teachers that Amiri had when he was the student at Howard. I want you to picture this. Mm -hmm. Over the course of something like two or three years, Owen Dotson had in his classroom Tony Morrison and um, uh, 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 Amiri Baraka or Leroy Jones. Um, there was um, another young man in that class uh, named uh, Ted Shine, who became um, one of the one of one of the young play uh, uh, black playwrights who was emerging uh, in the late fifties and early sixties, sort of a contemporary of Lonnie Elder mm -hmm. and Douglas Turner Ward, who we just lost um, uh, uh, this past week, the founder of the uh, Negro Ensemble Company. 
So Owen had Tony Morrison, Leroy Jones, Ted Schein, all in the same class at one time or another in the middle 1950s. And he was then at that point, the chair of the department that I was studying in. And Ted Schein was my immediate teacher and playwright. Amazing. And uh, yeah. And there's there's uh, uh, we're doing Dutchman by Leroy Jones. And I met him that night uh, when, uh, uh, opening night. That was the first time I met him. And suddenly, you know, he's uh, we found out that we were home home people. Home, homeboys. Um, I would not see him again for um, uh, two more years uh, after I graduated and came back to Newark. Now, what had happened in between that time was when he went from being Leroy Jones to Amir, um, uh, Amir Baraka at one point uh, before he became Amiri Baraka. Became Amir Baraka, and he had founded the Black Arts Repertory Company in Harlem, and uh, that institute that was the first black theater, a revolutionary or politicized black theater company in um, uh, the country, and it was the birthplace of the Black Arts Movement, um, uh, the intellectual as well as uh, um, um, dramatic or, or or creative power uh or or impetus that came that, that came to define the black arts movement came out of the black arts repertory theater um uh in harlem at that time um and uh when that particular theater company broke up for a lot of reasons um uh he moved to san francisco um, where there was another institution similar that was inspired by the Black Arts Repertory Theater. It was called um, the Black House. And he was out there and uh, the playwright, Sonia, the playwright poetess, uh, Sonia Sanchez, mm-hmm. she uh, was passing through there. Um, Bobby Seale and uh, later uh, uh, Elvish Cleaver, uh, they were passing through there, they were involved there. And another gentleman who also became one of the foundation stones of the Black Arts Movement, Ed Bullens. Ed Bullens, Was at Black House. Ed had helped found um, uh, Black House along with, um, um, I think Marvin X and uh, uh, a few others and everything. And then, so Amiri was there, but there was political turmoil and people had all different kinds of, of, of ideas and intentions and ambitions. And it was kind of hard to hold that um, uh, iteration of the Black House to, uh, you know, together. So Mary packed up and came back east. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to go to Harlem. He came home to Newark. And it was in Newark that he founded um, spirit house movers and players um, at, at, in, a, in an abandoned building, an old apartment building um, uh, on uh, it was number 33 Sterling Street. And he began to develop um, not only a theater company there, but he started to develop um, uh, the uh, political movement that uh, helped um, 
uh, lead to um, the Committee for a Unified Newark. And the Committee for a Unified Newark was one of the power engines behind um, the election of Ken Gibson oh. as the uh, first uh, you know, African-American mayor in the city of Newark. And um, part of that effort uh, also was uh, the formation of um, the uh, Black and Puerto Rican coalition. Um, so there was this organization that had brought together, you know, two of the largest communities of color in Newark at that time and said, hey, we need to put together a political slate that represents our interests because they are not being um, met by the powers that be in City Hall. We need to get somebody, you know, in, in the uh, corner office right. and we need to get some bodies on the city council. So the Black and Puerto Rican Convention developed a political slate of which Ken Gibson was a part, and that slate ran for office. I don't remember now, you probably have to, you know, do a little research and everything, find out exactly how many people from that slate actually, uh, actually won, but it was a movement that helped to uh, galvanize the use of the city and some of the most progressive uh, people in the Black and Puerto Rican communities come together and push uh, to uh, get Ken Gibson elected. Um, and then um, Amiri, while he was doing that, he was involved, in, you know, um, uh, on the cultural side of things with um, uh, Spirit House. Uh, he helped to bring Ed Bullens to the East Coast uh, because Spirit House was where some of Ed's uh, earliest uh, short plays were being produced. And Amiri was writing and producing plays there. And uh, some other uh, young playwrights were, uh, were coming up during, who were coming up during that time. Um, uh, Katibu, uh, young brother named Mwanafunzi uh, 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 Katibu. Mm-hmm. Um, he also uh, was, in, was involved with uh, um, uh, Spirit House. Well, and, uh, it was, and it was during that time. And then from there, Mary met um, uh, Ron Karenga, um, a, uh, a social scientist, a university professor, who then became a political leader. Um, and uh, in, uh, uh, he formed a group called um, Us um, out on the West Coast. And Amiri became, you know, he became involved with them. He met them, I think, at the first um, National Black Political Convention, the first of which was held in Newark um, in August of 1967. And that was when um, when Amiri met Karanga, as I recall. And then um, from there, he became Imamu Amir Baraka, then Imamu Amiri Baraka, and then later on, as his political um, consciousness began to evolve, uh, he moved from being Imamu, which is sort of like a, a, a spiritual leader honorific. He dropped that and became Amiri Baraka. Um, and then later shifted from Black nationalism to scientific uh, Marxism. 
And um, he held fast to that um, uh, political ideology for the rest of his life. Richard, you've given us an, an, an incredible sort of arc from this idea of the creative to the political. And again, sort of when we, we said earlier about this idea of artists disturbing the peace, this idea. Well, yeah, of, I mean, and culture. that's the thing. See, that's the thing. Um, when inside the Black Arts Movement, the political and the creative or the political and the cultural they're, 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 they're united, they're intertwined. You can't separate one out of the other. Right. Um, so yes, artists are supposed to disturb the peace. Artists are the antenna of the society in which they live. Um, they're, you know, we are supposed to leave ourselves vulnerable and open to what's going on around us so that we can begin to record it. So if you're a playwright, and you're you're writing dramas. You're writing dramas about what's going on in the lives of the people. You're taking the struggles that are going on in the streets or or the turmoil that's going on in people's personal lives, and you're putting it on stage so that we can all examine it. Exactly. Now that's a great segue. I wanted to get back to your Central Park Five opera. Okay. And I, and I found a quote uh, while working on the Central. Park Five Opera, you said, I had memories of how I felt when all of this was unfolding in real time. Yes. I had information and memory of that period in the early 1990s when so much of this unfolded and I decided, let's go with these feelings. What does all of this mean to America? So I, I, I found that very moving and very, very sort of present in what we're mm. going through right now, this idea of uh, giving a movement or giving a, an idea, um, a, a, way, a, a voice. Yes. And you were giving you and your libretto and uh, Anthony Davis in the uh, writing of the opera, this voice of injustice and how justice has to be somehow realized. Um, can you tell me how the collaboration with you and Anthony Davis came about? Um, the first iteration of the opera was um, a, a piece called Five. Mm -hmm. And um, all I know is I got a telephone call from Kevin Maynard, the director, the artistic director of Trilogy, um, who asked me or said to me basically, um, I want to do an opera, um, uh, I'm calling it Five. It'll be about the Central Park Five. And I'd like you to, you know, to think about the uh, libretto. And you have one year to write it. <laughs> <laughs> one year, wow. One year, that's it. You know, um, so um, at that point, I'm trying to remember exactly when it, oh, right, it was at that point that he also told me that he had been talking with Anthony mm -hmm. and that um, Anthony would not be able to do anything until he had 
um, a libretto for me. So Anthony was going to wait. I didn't really speak with Anthony on the phone until he had a chance to read the libretto. So it was, it was almost a year before he and I actually spoke directly to each other. And um, uh, he made some suggestions about um, some changes that he thought would work better in terms of shaping the libretto itself. And um, I made those adjustments. Um, and then I was starting to come up with some ideas, but we, but time was starting to get very, very, very short. Um, so some of the additional things I wanted to do, I wasn't able to do that first time around. Um, Anthony took over the, took over, um, uh, working on the music and, and, uh, musicalizing what I had written at yeah. that point. Um, I was writing something, uh, going back to the uh, quote, um, rather than trying to recreate um, minute by minute everything that happened, uh, which Ava, Ava DuVernay did so eloquently and so expertly um, in When They See Us mm -hmm. on television, well, we can't do all of that on stage. It's an opera. And I knew that as soon as you start mus trying to musicalize the dialogue, you're going to take a you, you, you're running the uh, risk. Well, the reality is you're taking a scene that might take eight minutes to perform on mm -hmm. stage. And suddenly with the once it's musicalized, it's a 15 minute scene. Right. Right. And. I knew at most we we're only going to have about two hours of performance. So I had to figure out a way to write a piece, basically a one act play that um, talks about the um, events of um, the uh, Central Park Five and covers 13 years of social history. <laughs> Some editing, huh? Yeah, you know. <laughs> Uh, so what I did was, as opposed to trying to write reality, mm -hmm. I started writing in metaphors and I started writing, uh, um, I started writing those feelings, the anguish, the rage, the, um, um, uh, the, the, um, the fear, the terror. Those were the things that I wrote mm -hmm. and I put them uh, in a particular order on the page, the uh, duplicity um, and the, um, uh, the the malfeasance um, in terms of the way those young men were prosecuted and um, forced into making confessions um, to crimes that they did not commit and the pain that comes out of that, the realization that you're going to jail, you're going away to prison for a crime that you didn't commit. And everyone thinks that you're a monster and no matter what you do, no matter what you say, um, the society has created this image of you that is, that, that is virtually impermeable. Exactly. You know, so um, that, was, that was what I wrote. And I could turn that, I could make that a one act play. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and um, and I did, you know, wow. and then Anthony took that and he turned it in a, into a two hour musical score. <laughs> well, Richard, congratulations again for thank you for an, an incident that still burns in all of our memories. Yes. For for you and Anthony to put it again in an art form where it lives, where the power of it lives will be living on forever. So that's something that's something, you know, we're both very proud of. And it was, it, you know, it was just really uh, it was a thrill mm-hmm. uh, when um, I saw in the New York Times uh, last year that um, uh, the opera had actually uh received um you know pulitzer recognition uh for music it was like wow. whoa what wow. oh man wow wow what a uh, you know um so it's yeah yeah it's you know I, I i'm very proud of that yes absolutely well again last question okay all right richard you're a professor of playwriting and screenwriting at nyu what are your students revealing through their writings about the world of today and possibly tomorrow with black lives matter the pandemic are are these issues becoming the next fodder for for writing or is it or not yet um for some of them yes definitely for uh for um my black students absolutely mm-hmm. that they go directly to that in terms of uh, of um of their writing um for um students who are not black but are students of color they're starting to explore who they are mm-hmm. they're starting to look at the world through the prism of the communities that they've come up in um for uh students who are you know who are white um some of them are addressing social issues. Others are just simply, hey, man, I'm just trying to get paid. <laughs> you know, I just want to be a, I want to be a, uh, a movie writer. I want to be a showrunner for television. I'm just trying to make it out here. Yeah, you know, so um, you got this this wide range mm-hmm. uh, of of, am, of ambitions and directions that the students want to go in. Um, but at the core. Uh, of all of them collectively is a recognition that um, at least if they're in my class, it's a recognition because I tell them about it all the time as writers, they get to define, they get to define the country and the century. That's part of their job. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's part of the expectation that we should have for them because they have the talent to do that and they shouldn't abuse that talent. So uh, by, you know, just sitting on a fence and not doing it or not taking a stand, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's impossible. No artist cannot take a stand. One of the most political artists of the 20th century was Charlie Chaplin. You look, when, when people look at this film, really take a look at what he was doing and what he was saying. Sure. He was addressing you know, the idea of, um, you know, hey, industrialization. Fascism. He got it. He, he got all of it. Absolutely. You Absolutely. know, so, hey, you know, um, you know, you can't sit on your hands and you can't pretend somehow that, uh, you know, you're not um, uh, you're not responsible for what goes on out there. You know, you're just going to, you know, write some little ditty somewhere and, uh, you know, 
make some money. Right. No, you know, right now, you know, one of the most popular sci-fi uh, uh, series on television is Star Trek Discovery. And when you really look at Star Trek Discovery, that thing is nothing but politics. Oh, always. That's one of my wife, Cheryl's <laughs> favorite shows. Yeah, you know, that's nothing but politics. And the imaging in that, that the imaging that comes forward in terms of the characters and how they're placed in the series and everything, that is a comment on what is expected of this country moving forward in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So, hey, you know, it's all there. It's, it's all there. That's absolutely that's the best way to put it. It's all there. It's all there. Well, you Richard, um, it is what it is. It is what it is. Oh, really. We all know that art inspires, mm -hmm. art educates, and art changes minds. Right. Thank you for creating work that demonstrates the power of art. Roger, you're most welcome. Thank you. One, two, three, all right. Four. And you have a good evening. You too. All right. Bye bye. Have a good one. Take good care now. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks to Willie Cole for sharing how the cultural impact of Newark has shaped his life and work. Tune in next time for another conversation with our guest who will share their Newark, New Jersey cultural journey. If you'd like to share your Newark, New Jersey story, go to our website and submit your unique journey on our contact page. Again, I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I look forward to sharing these fascinating Newark, New Jersey conversations with you sometime soon. So long and be well.